On today's episode, Dave interviews Barb Wallace. Barb is a Second City Mainstage and ETC alum, having worked with Michael Myers and Bonnie in numerous reviews. Barb won a Joseph Jefferson Award for her direction in Second City's We Made in Mesopotamia, Now You Clean It Up, a review Dave was in. Barb has written and created network shows for CBS, NBC, and HBO Productions. On location in Chicago, I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. I was laid off a job a while ago at a place that I used to work at that was out there where I where I am Los Angeles yes and it was a place and I I I was working there and I felt like yeah I'd done as much as I could here and then some shakings went on and I was essentially asked to leave that job (laughs) um and I thought oh this is really happening and it occurred to me that if the universe wants you to clean out your locker and you don't don't be surprised when you walk up to it one day and all your shit's outside. <laughs> was that the first time you were ever asked to leave? No, I was, well, I was once asked to uh, not renew a lease. Um, That's not the same. Well, I'm, I'm putting it in a ballpark. It's a list. Um, and then uh, I was fired. I was fired. So that's kind of the same thing in a different job. I can't believe it. I was asked to leave once, well, no, more than once, but I was asked to leave WXRT. We used to do those comedy breaks there. Right. And we were asked to leave by our very good friend, Norm Weiner, who to this day claims that he didn't ask us to leave, that he just told us he would stop paying us. And that I'm like, well, Norm, that's firing us by telling us you didn't want us to come into the studio anymore and you stopped paying us. Right. Uh, But yeah. Yeah. It's best for your friendships to not work for your friends anymore. So. Well, I had somebody that I had to fire at Second City, a teacher that I had to fire at Second City. That was a friend of all of ours, and a friend of yours too. And um, I, had a, I, I had to fire that person, and it it affected our relationship for years. I oh, mean, yeah. obviously it affected our and And here's the thing. He wasn't in my life anymore, but I thought about him all the time. And when I saw him, it was this bad. It was, of course, it's bad. Has it gone? Has it gotten better? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I, I said I can't not have you in my life anymore, and that's the toughest thing. Like I'm so sorry this happened. I cannot, I cannot not have. I want to have you in my life, and we're friends. Well, I have to say that some of the hallmarks of adulthood, you know, one of them is firing people, and uh, I've had to, I had to fire an actor from a show once who is a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, the network wanted him fired and they weren't going to pick up the show mm-hmm. if he was on it. And, you know, he wasn't the lead. Right. And there was no way that Tom, who I write with, who's my husband, there was no oh. way. Right. There was no way we could really justify not letting him go under the circumstances. You know, the studio had we were on an overall deal and the studio had paid us handsomely and. They trusted us to try to get a show on the air, and you know, you, we were torn. But you know, you can't. My responsibilities lay toward doing my job, right. and it was extremely painful and difficult, and the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. So you were the you were the writers on the show. We were the creators and executive producers of that show. But you weren't was, the showrunner. We were. You were the showrunner. We were the showrunners. Also. So executive producers also showrunner. Right. Okay. We uh-huh. shared the job with um, we we coerced our friend Eric Gilliland mm-hmm. into joining us mm-hmm. so that we were a three-man uh, executive producer team, which was uh-huh. great because we loved Eric and he was easy to work with. And honestly, it is such a hard job. Mm-hmm. I don't know how anybody does it. It seems like it's all con- consuming. You are thinking about it all the time and the pressures of 
finances and everybody's finances and mortgages oh. and there, you know, all that stuff is, is all there. It's you know? awful. Right. Remember that? Remember those sounds? Do you have one of those? I do have a, a home line. I you have, have a, a landline. You have a landline? You have a landline? We're at my mom's house in Chicago, by the way. Uh, a you have lovely a bungalow. A lovely bungalow. Um, I, the idea of, so, oh, so you were doing that too. And a phone answering machine. Well. <laughs> I have one of those also. <laughs> um, my mom has such, has such a, uh, she's such a mom. She's such a mom. Um, but when you have all those responsibilities of the showrunner and all that, and executive producer and writer, oh my God. So how long ago was this? I don't want to, I don't want to know. What You're going to date me. It was like, uh, gosh, it was a long time ago. You were still out in LA. You know, the show was actually shot in New York. Oh, sorry. so, uh -huh. um, it, we were living in LA and Christine Baranski was cast in the show yeah. and she would only shoot in New York. So, right. uh, we moved our family to New York. Um, <laughs> we, Tom and I are like the least businessy people in the world. We actually misread our contract and we thought we were going to make more money than we did living in New York. This is what fuck up. I'm not, I'm not yeah, 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 yeah. This right. is what fuck ups we are. I mean, I, I think that every time our agent or lawyer gets a phone call from us, they think, oh, Jesus God, it's Barb and Tom again. What have they screwed up? <laughs> what have they screwed up this time? Um, it all turned out fine. We obviously were handsomely you know, compensated anyway. But we moved our family to New York to shoot that show. Mm -hmm. um, where did you live in New York? We lived at 105th and Broadway. Uh -huh. And it was honestly one of the greatest experiences of sure. my life. The work was incredibly hard, but they canceled us around December. And then we said, you know, we're going to stay for the rest of the year because our kids were in school. And so we had like six months in New York where we weren't working. Oh, my God. It was awesome. Oh, my God. On the Upper uh, West Side. Yeah. I mean, I had good friends living right. like within two blocks. My sister lived like four blocks away. Right, like, you were New Yorkers. Oh, it was so, I loved being a New Yorker. <laughs> and New Yorkers are great. Oh my gosh. You know, people think that New Yorkers are not friendly. That is so not true. They are so welcoming. Right. Especially if you live in, I imagine wherever you're going to live, because it's such a condensed area. Uh, you know, now you're in Evanston. And if you see four people walking in the streets, it's probably like, what, is there a parade? <laughs> um, but it's such a condensed area and you keep seeing the same people over and over and over again in your neighborhood and are at the restaurants that you go to and the restaurants up there are great. It's true. And you know, when you live in an apartment building, you're in the elevator every day with the same people, smushed, really right. smushed with them. Right. And people in New York, I, I, you know, most people are in Midtown or they're seeing a show or something and people are impatient, New Yorkers, when tourists get in their way and they're on their way to work. But when they're back in their neighborhood, they're very friendly. I mean, people were so welcoming to us, uh, introducing, inviting us to dinner. I mean, we made really nice friends there in, awesome. in a year. Um, so I have nothing but great things to say about New York. And if well, I could afford it, I would live there. Oh, my God. So would I. I really would. I, I, I would live there. I love living in L.A. You guys didn't like it. You know, it wasn't our style. I, I can't bash L.A. because I have so many good friends there. and You know. I think what happened in New York also was that we got to New York and we realized we really like the city. Right. And um, of course, Evanston's not really a city, but um, we realized that we we weren't going to be happy unless we lived in the city. Right. Um, and then I, other. Sorry. Where are you from? Delaware. You're from Delaware. Which city in Delaware? <laughs> city. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Dover, Delaware. Dover, Delaware. It's right a big city. No. In Delaware. No. I mean, I grew up. It was like. Maybe twenty five, thirty thousand people. Of, what's it? What's the big Wilmington city? Is the Wilmington. Wilmington. Yeah. Wilmington. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we, you moved to Chicago. 
Uh, I moved to Chicago in uh, the 80s, 83. Mm -hmm. What brought you here? Oh, God. Um, you know, I went to school in England mm -hmm. and when I, my last year of college, and I met really nice people there from Chicago. And they kept saying it was a really nice town. And I didn't want to live in any city on the East Coast anymore, but I knew I wanted to live in a city. Uh, so I decided to try it. And, you know, I, I came here, I got a job in publishing. I mean, I didn't. Who did you work for? I worked for the University of Chicago Press. Uh huh. And you were doing what? I was an editor's assistant. Uh huh. And then I went on to write book jacket copy and uh -huh. uh, catalog copy mm -hmm. for you know things like uh, books about Dutch art or like I mean they were like monographs for University right. Press, not something anybody ever read. But they're beautiful books, though. Oh, they were, and it was really fun to write book jacket copy. I right. actually really enjoyed it. Right. Yeah. So Jenna Jolovitz is writing promos. Oh, that sounds fun. She writes promos for NBC. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, she does it out of her house, from what I understand. I know somebody else who does that, a friend's sister. It sounds really fun. It's really, it seems really fun. She gets to spend time with her family, and she gets to go do that thing, and she has a writing job on the network. I know, that's awesome. It's crazy when you think about what it is that we're all doing now. Nobody tells you these jobs exist. Right. You know, like when you're a kid and you go to college, people are like, are you going to be a lawyer or a doctor, or a fireman or a ballerina? And it's like, you know, those aren't the only jobs in the world. There are all these jobs that exist. Did you say you astronaut? Oh, astronaut. I'm so sorry. Was that your job? Was that what you I thought about be? it. I, you know, I you should have. I actually thought about a conductor of an orchestra. I thought I could do that. How hard would that be? A baton and just go to rhythm? And did you have any idea what the job entails? No, of course not. It was just something. Because I don't think that people look at what the job entails. I think they look at what the job looks like. Right. They look at the tip of the iceberg, not realizing that underneath the iceberg is, you know, what rises. You know, it's what pushes that tip out. So they see the astronaut being in space, fixing with a lug nut. They don't see the process of becoming no. the astronaut. Exactly. It, well, so, the process is everything. I mean, that your job is the process. Right. And I mean, we've taught some classes, Tom and I at Northwestern, and those students, when they ask about like the business or entertainment, I always say you gotta like the process. Because the product is variable. It can be good, it can be terrible, and sometimes you don't have control over that. Right. So you really right. need to enjoy the process of the work or you're gonna be unhappy. It's and, and I gotta I'm gonna go back to I'll go back to I just light upon the work that you and I did in ETC with that cast back there. And I have to tell you that your process was great. The oh, process that we you. did was well look at the show that we did. It was a really it awesome was a great show. show. I loved it. Right. And it was all about Everybody enjoying the process. Well, you were a big part of that. I don't know if you remember, but the cast was a little bit uh, tense before your arrival. Um, and when you came into the cast, you brought with you kind of an ease and you broke up a lot of kind of what was <laughs> festering there. You know how Second City cast yeah. can get. I mean, yeah. it's a very intense environment. And um, I, I think your attitude I'm not really just saying that because you're, I'm sitting here talking to you, but it's true. You really broke up kind of what was happening there, and then the show started to flow after that. It was, I was really kind of at my wit's end, and um, and when you came in, it really, I, I mean, that was one of the reasons I, I wanted you in the show, was I knew you would bring in like this kind of new energy and vivacity and mm -hmm. ideas. Thank you. It, it I left that place never feeling like, I remember when I got the job, Donnie DiPolo said to me, when I got to come to the job, Donnie DiPolo said, do your job, pay no attention to the politics. Enjoy every moment that you're there and leave before you get bitter. And I thought, oh, that's, that's four, very that's four wise things that advice. I can do. Yeah. 
There's four things that I could do. Because I never understood why people were, I never really understood how people got bitter at that job. Like bitter, not just frustrated with the process, but like, what am I doing? How come this isn't? And I'm thinking, every day that you're here, be here every day that you're here. And again, it's living your life as process. And don't look at the end or how disappointed you're going to be. You've got a job. Yeah, it's true. And I probably didn't have enough of that attitude. I don't think I was bitter while I was there, but I was definitely frustrated. And I should have lived more in the moment and enjoyed it more. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, there, the times I had there were really fun. Right. Especially at like ETC. You know, the main stage, as you know, is a lot more of a kind of a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. And there's... I think people feel like a lot more is at stake, whether it's true or not. I mean, that's how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tensions run higher on the main stage. Right. But I always saw you, the work that you did and the work that Crowley did, because I always saw you as a duo. I don't know why I saw that. We were a duo. You were a duo. We were a duo before Second City. Right. We um, had an act called Sons of the Desert. Right. And uh, yeah, we played clubs and we, we tried to be a duo for a while. But the work that I saw you guys do over there was also inclusive of everybody else, especially in ETC, the work you did in ETC and the work that you did in Main Stage too. Uh, looking back on all those things. And, and, and when you're working with somebody that you like working with or when you're, you're excited about working with somebody who has an energy that you like, it makes everything so much better. And if you are having a hard time in a show, it could be because you're the asshole. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that many times I probably was. I mean, I think all, I had a pretty contentious, some of my, not contentious, there were a lot of tensions in some of my main stage casts. But now when we all run into each other, I think people are like, oh God, wasn't I terrible sometimes? Right. So I think everybody <laughs> says, that was what was so great actually about the 50th reunion. For me, for me anyway, and I don't know if it was this way for you, everything just was gone. I felt nothing uh, for, but goodwill toward everybody. It was right. so much fun to see everybody. I had an awesome time. It was and yeah, I, and I, I guess I hadn't anticipated that I would feel that way. Mm -hmm. But it was super fun. I don't know if everybody felt that way, but I, I sure don't did. Know. I for those of us who well, I don't know, I felt that way, and everybody else that I talked to that was at the fiftieth, uh, who was a participant in it, felt that the. Sh it was a really well put together event. And I need to say something here. I, I don't want anybody listening to this thinking that we started with Second City and that we somehow were at our 50th anniversary. Let's be clear. <laughs> it was Dave Second and City's I, 50th. it was Second City's 50th. <coughs> right. It was Second City's 50th. Not I've, Dave and Barb's. No, I, no, 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 no. We've got a long way to go before that. Oh, gosh. Do we? Yes. Dave, stop. Yes. Wait, that show is what? Eight? Don't. Okay. Stop counting. <laughs> I'm trying not to count. Somebody was telling me, oh, we went to see Terry Gross, you know, fresh air. I love Terry Gross. Me too. People have issues with Terry Gross. I'm why? Thinking, why? Because somebody goes, I don't like the way that she goes after guests. I'm goes thinking, after guests? What? I know. I just talked to somebody who said the other day, I don't like the way that she goes after guests. I'm like, she doesn't go after guests. She asks really good questions. I think so too. There's one guy on that show and I've talked about him before. Maybe he's going to listen to our podcast. <laughs> And he's going to go, oh, i got to pick this up. David being Cooley? Yes, I, I, he subs for her, right? When she's well, he subs oh, for her. he does the he movie. Does TV. TV, right? He does TV. And this is the way he talks. There's a really exciting new show on HBO. The show is called Game of Thrones. <laughs> everybody in the cast is just marvelous. You'll be surprised every step of the way how marvelous everybody is. And I'm thinking... Oh, oh, oh. You should be passing out right now with oh. the amount of in-breath you're taking. Can I tell you how much I hate hearing breathing? 
I can't stand it when actors are on stage and they do that meaningful breath before their next line. <gasps> and so, my lord, I'm like, oh no, oh, don't breathe so I can hear you. I do not. It's like the fake walk when actors fake walk to exit. Oh. I'm like, exit or don't. Don't give me that two step fake walk. I hate it. And I hate that breath. Oh. I hate, well, I think Mamet said in that book, True and False, it's like everybody's just like reading the lines and then breathing and breathing. He doesn't say it in that way. What happened to him? I don't know. Something happened to him. Or maybe he was always that way. I think he is, uh, he's supposed to be very uh, conservative in his yes. views. Extremely conservative yes. in his views. And we all thought, oh, he's from Chicago. Meh. No, it's not. Well, I read recently something he said about, you know, college students needing to, you know, stop studying the arts or something. But like his kid is an actor. And I'm like, so your kid gets to be an actor, but other people's kids don't get right. to be actors. They right. have to buckle down and become an engineer. Why would anybody even say that who's in the arts? I don't get I don't, that at all. I don't all. get that either. I don't really get it. I, I think the arts are a really wonderful life. And I mean, I work in television. I don't know if I can call it the arts, but I think that. Uh, it is the arts. It is. It is, I guess. Yeah. I'm at a well, crisis. it's not. Well, when you compare it to everything, it's not like it's not like it's the ditch digging or the putting a thing together. Right. Exactly. You know, and it's a creating something out of nothing, and when the world explodes, no one will even give a shit about what. But they won't give a shit about that other stuff either. No, they won't. That's true. So you know, I think that if your kid wants to go into the arts and they have something to say, and this is all coming from someone whose daughter is going to school to become a dancer, so you mm -hmm. know, look where I'm at. Um, right. I've got to support it or. Or what would I be doing right now? I, I, for me, I look at, I look, I was, I was having a discussion with my cousin yesterday, and he was saying he's going to, he's um, just graduated college or soon, recently graduated college, and he listens to the podcast a lot. You'll probably hear this, and he's going for his real estate degree, a real estate license. What he really wants is to be a photographer, and he said that he's reading this book, and the book says. Um, in your free time, do what it is that you're interested in. But in the meantime, get yourself a job. And if you don't like it, at some point, you're going to like it because you're going to get successful at it. And I said, stop reading books. I said, stop reading that book. <laughs> Just stop reading that book right now. Just stop it. Because I wish that somebody told me, and somebody actually did tell me this, no one knows what they want to do or when you're at, when you're 21, no, 22, they don't. 23. And you shouldn't have to know. I feel like colleges and there's just this whole part, partly it's due to the recession, but also this, I don't know. It, it started, I think, in the Reagan era, this kind of professionalization of life. Like you need to know what you're going to do and you need to start. Even when I was in college, people started saying, what are you going to do with an English degree? Because they all were going into business or accounting. And I'm like, well, I mean, I was raised in a family where you went to school to become educated. That's mm -hmm. what I was told as a child. Mm -hmm. Like you don't go to school to get a job. You will get a job, but you go to school in order to become an educated person. And that is worthwhile in and of itself. That is awesome. You go to school to be an educated person and you will get a job. Exactly. Because right. you're an educated person. Right. And I think it's worthwhile being educated anyway. Um, so you got a degree in English. Is that what you yes. um, I have a degree in photojournalism. Do you? Yes, I do. I did not know that. Why would you know that? What part of my life right now shows that, except for my food pictures? What on, made on, you know my food pictures online? And, what made you go into that? Um, I was doing theater until I was a freshman in. I was doing theater until I was a senior in high school, and then my dad said, "Get a degree in something else," and <clears throat> and he was he did some he dabbled and I dabbled, and it felt like I could do that, so I got a degree in journalism, and I got to tell you. 
uh, it changed. It, it, I went, obviously went back to theater in my fifth year of college, but I felt like I know how to talk to people. I know how to be curious. I know how to put a story together. Uh, I know how to format something. I know punctuation. I know grammar. Um, I know uh, PR. I learned a little about PR there. So that all helped. And then when I came back here, it was 82, 83, around the time that you came back here, mm -hmm. or came here. Yeah. Um, and it was a crazy time, Barb. It was a great time. I know. Don't you think? I mean, I, we had so many opportunities. There were so many venues for performers. It was really exploding. And a lot of those venues are gone now, which is sad. The Comedy Showcase mm -hmm. and Keefe's and right. all those places that just opened their doors to young performers. Right. At the Comedy Showcase, they paid us. They paid us. Right. I mean, it was unheard of. Um, it, it was really an explosion. But you're right. When you come out of school or wherever with a set of skills, those skills should be applicable across the board. You can apply them somewhere else. So if your degree's in history, you know. What's your daughter? But uh, you know, not but. It's not a but. Your daughter, when because of dance, you can you can dance for a certain amount of time. She knows that. We've right? discussed that. I know that. So, it, and it's not like you don't want to give her a fallback. And this is leading towards something where it isn't, she shouldn't do that. That's not what I do. It's too late, Dave. She's enrolled. <laughs> Help her. Get her out. It's like at the end of uh, The Graduate. I'll run in. It's like, stop. Plastic. <laughs> stop. Um, but it's the idea of um, what, what is, what, uh, in the Venn diagram, what is that middle part where she gets this, this education in dance and what are the skills that she can get out of that? It's a rhetorical question, I believe, but maybe not. Am I making sense? You like are for making me, sense. The, the idea that But I'm, I will say my palms are sweating as you speak. <laughs> they're going to do that anyway. So uh, it's that idea of I got, I learned how to uh, organize my thoughts in journalism school. And what is the spiritual thing that's underneath dance that she takes out into the world? Well, I, I don't know. I'm not a dancer. And I, I don't know anything about dance except that I really like it. Mm -hmm. um, and she's a modern dancer, so she's not like a ballerina. So hopefully her feet won't be totally damaged by whatever she does. But, um, you know, they have to, uh, through the course of their study, from what I understand. Where is she? She's going to be at Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, they have to put on a show. Right. And as you and I know, putting on a show is an incredibly uh, comprehensive uh, undertaking. Mm -hmm. Casting, mm -hmm. choreographing, um, working with other people, lighting, music. Those are skills that you will take to any job because right. it's basically project management. Um, in addition, you know, she's required to do sciences that are related to dance. Right. And I, one of the things about Indiana was they do tell them you're never making a living and so make sure you back yourself up with a certificate to teach something or whatever. Right. So hopefully she won't be living with us forever. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I like her a lot, but I don't need her with me forever. Uh, I love the word comprehensive. You use the word comprehensive because it really is all these other things that put that show together. Um, and it's not just the art, it's also the, ele the, the, the elements of all the things that you described lighting and sound and movement and ticket sales and all those things that if you I, if you say to yourself i i i'm my brain's not wired to do that i want to say why not yeah why is the, what do you mean your brain's not wired to do that how is that possible that your brain's not wired to do all those things 
I think that it's a mental it's a mental block that you're putting in that says you can't do those things. Oh, I need these words right now. And you're right. I mean, you're right. And I've often been guilty of that. Like, mm -hmm. oh, my brain doesn't work that way. I'm not right. good at that, whatever. Well, you were I saying, think it's a cop out. It's a way of getting out of doing what you're well, supposed it's, to do. It's you It's you embracing resistance as opposed, as opposed to you engaging in the task at hand. Now, yeah. if you're looking at the task at hand, if you're looking at the task, task at hand and you're seeing the grandiose thing that is going to be at the end, that's going to be impossible to it's do. Possible, exactly. Because it's not, we go back to this, it's process. Yeah. And if you say, okay, this little piece here is not a little piece here, it's what I'm doing right now. Right, exactly. And this is what I'm going to accomplish today. Right. And, and, and I may do a shitty job at it. I mean, I think that's the other thing you have to recognize, that in the process there are mistakes. Right. And, you know, you're going to, that's part of it. Making those mistakes and learning from those mistakes is part of the process. Yes. And, and, and the thing about working at Second City is you look at those, none of those things were mistakes. They were just things that led us towards what it was that we finally got to. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, when people say things like, it was, uh, it was the last place I looked. You go, well, you're not going to look after you find it. You've already found it. Right. So the idea of it was a mistake, it wasn't a mistake. It's what drove you it toward drove that. It drove you to that. Yeah. Exactly. It drove you to that thing. So, you know, again, it's not like, I found my wallet and then... I spent another hour looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went back to the place I found it. And God damn it, it was there. It's exactly. weird. Where was the last place I saw it before I thought I should look for it more? <laughs> and that's exactly where it was. But it's that, it is, it is that idea of, um, I talked about this book before. It was Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Lair's book. It's called Imagine. And it's about the creative process. And he talks about, and I mentioned the 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 iceberg the tip of the iceberg is the oh it's he uses it the aha moment as if the aha moment came of you just sitting there and going oh no the aha moment was the end of all that other stuff that you did the failure and the planning and the you know the, the perceived failure the perceived the planning that didn't work and then ended up you getting it to work so we've got to stop looking at things and going that's wrong what i did or that's not a mistake there's got to be another word for that and i always use the joe list word glarnars as a very good word <laughs> you know remember what joe would use no joe, joe loved the word glarnars and so it was like, there needs to be a word that isn't mistake and that isn't failure. It's Glarnars. And the Glarnars would be, it just was what led me towards that other thing. And I think you're right because, you know, as a writer, I mean, there's a, there's a saying, which is anybody can write a first act. Mm -hmm. um, it's the second act that's hard. Oh, my God. And, and the second act is hard because it's all that. It's mistake. It's Glarnars over and over again. It's Glarnars, it's Glarnars, it's Glarnars until you get to like, oh, this is where I'm going. Um, and it's torturous. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard work. But um, what if you don't think of it as hard work? Well, that's it. I mean, I think when you're in the groove, or at least when Tom and I are writing together and we're in the groove, it doesn't feel like hard work. Right. Um, it feels enjoyable. And if you're laughing while you're doing it and it feels like a great process. There are times when it does feel like work, and I think you have to recognize that or, you know, you'll be dissatisfied as a writer. I mean, I've worked with writers before, you know, when I've had a staff, oh, you know, once, because mm -hmm. we only had one show on the air. Right. Um, and sometimes there are writers who really shy away from that, from second, what? that second act difficulty, mm -hmm. and they keep mm -hmm. wanting to move backwards and redo a first act, looking for, like, something that's going to magically give them that second act. That, that There is no magic. The magic is the work hard or not, the work 
that's going to push you into that second act. And to think that it's just going to magically appear is not true. But you're right. You should be enjoying the hard work, right. not like not seeing it as a burden. Um, I don't even know that you have to enjoy the hard work as much as you have to accept the hard work. Yes, exactly. Because it, it is what it is, and you get to choose the enjoyment. You get to you get to call it enjoyment, or you get to call it hard work. Right. Because a lot of people are going, yeah. And so, when you wrote this play, did you enjoy it? Well, how can I enjoy it? It was a play about death and murder. Like, <laughs> did you enjoy the process? Um, well, no, because it's like, all right, fine. Because for me, there's that word nachis. You know, what nachis means no. it's. I always call it a Latin word. But it's really Yiddish. I was going to um, say that's ch. Come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Nachas. So it's this pleasure that you get out of some. It's a pleasure that you get out of just the process. So you're looking at your daughter at her recital, and you you know when she's younger, dance recital, and you're looking at her, and you're you're getting this joy. It's filling your heart. It's like it doesn't matter if she's doing good or bad. You can't even judge it in that way. She's up there doing it. So the process in itself. You go, this is what I'm here. This is what I'm on the planet to do. I'm doing this. Nachas. Nachas. I need to remember that word. Nachas. It's That's a good a word. Great you get word. such nachas and you want to hit your chest. And you get such I'm going to hit my chest yeah, now get too. Such I get nachas. such nachas. I get such nachas. Oh, I get such nachas. But it's that feeling of the joy of living in that. It's such a Yiddish word. The joy of living in that moment yeah. and appreciating that moment. Oh, I like that. I'm yeah. stick with it. It's, hold on to it. You learned Nachas and Glarnars today. I did. Oh Which my sounds God. like Nachas and Glarnars, hold please. <laughs> <laughs> They're accountants. Uh, we, when growing up, we, we went to, we would never get shoes or shirts or pants at a store. My dad would always know some guy. <laughs> oh, he had a guy. I love guys <laughs> who have a guy. He had a guy. And one guy had a, 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 a men's, a boys and men's clothing shop on, on Grand. And we would go and we would always, it'd be like, he'll see us when he sees us. Like, why can't we just go to the fucking Sears? <laughs> but uh, one of them was Walensky and Levy was the name. So maybe Nachas and Glarnars. So Walensky and Levy <laughs> was shoes. And I think it was a warehouse on Halstead on the south side. And he had to like push a button and ring a bell and come in and nothing was on display. <laughs> it's like, what do you want, Jerry? Hey, Jerry, what's going on? It's like, what? No, no. no. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, Nachas and Glarnas. Uh, but living in that, living the, I, I, I talked to so many people about process and not judging the fucking process. Well, that's really the death of everything, isn't it? The judgment and the criticism. Right. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. So I think it's... But you're still I, working. I, I am. But I think the older you get, I mean, the older I've gotten, the more I realize that everybody does it and everybody does it in all forms of their life, mm -hmm. that most people are evaluating themselves all the time. Right. And it's kind of a human curse in a way. But it's a human curse if you call it a curse, but it's not. It, oh, you're so positive. But yeah, oh, my God. It's infuriating sometimes. I'm going right? to come out of here feeling good. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob. I'm sorry, Bob. Uh, but it's that, that, that where you go, is that... Because you have a great laugh. And I've heard you laugh a lot. And... The I, I and you laugh at yourself too, don't you? Oh yeah. So when you laugh because at yourself, I'm a moron. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you celebrate the fact that you're a moron, and you laugh at that as opposed to going, "I'm a fucking moron. How can I? What? I gotta stop." Um, I, I a, fr a friend of mine, she kept saying, "Yeah, I, I um, I'm a bad parent," and but she is not at all. And um, what's another thing she said? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I fail all the time. I fail all the time. I said, stop, just stop it. Stop it. 
Why are you saying that to yourself? Right. Because you're saying it to yourself. And here's another thing. I'm your friend. You think I want to be around you if you keep calling yourself a failure? Yeah. No, you're right. And failure is not an option in that you've just got to move forward and not look at it as failure. I mean, one of the things that you come away from Second City with is kind of a... You're put up there every day and you're failing, so to speak, all the time. Right. And uh, you start to become immune to it in a way um, because it, it becomes less of something you're afraid of. Right. You don't see it as something. You see it, oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. You don't see it as failure. No. And you definitely learn to laugh at yourself over disasters. Right. Um, right. Because you have disastrous moments on stage. And you learn to just live with them and find them hilarious in the end because they are. Right. Well, Colbert was talking about, when I was talking to Colbert uh, on, uh, I hope he's doing okay. You ever hear about him anymore? Stephen mm. Colbert? Colbert. It doesn't matter. Gosh. It doesn't he matter. He was, oh, he was sweet. sweet he was sweet. Kid. He was a really nice kid. Sweet good kid. kid. Good I kid. do like, uh, I did good like kid. him. Good kid out of Carolina, so no. It doesn't matter. So he was talking about uh, being backstage in ETC. Uh, he and I were both backstage in ETC, and he was talking about Jenna Jolivis was on stage singing that, doing that blackout of the whales. Oh, yeah. You know, uh -huh. where you say, and, they, and it's drumming the guitar and tuning the guitar, and this song is for the whales. And then you go, and make that sound. So that was the blackout. So Stephen and I are backstage, and, she, and we're listening, and she goes, she says, and I'd like to play a song for you, and she tunes it up, and she goes, and the audience is going, what's happening? Well, she forgot to say this song is for the whales. <laughs> <laughs> so Colbert and I are falling on the, Stephen talks about it, he goes, we're falling, on, we're, we're hugging each other and bang, bashing our fists into the ground with laughter and saying, that is just the greatest thing ever, <laughs> right there. And you look at it and you go, is that a failure? I don't know. It's a love for the work and it's a, it just... It shows you why it works, and it shows you why it doesn't work. You know, if you don't do the setup, no one's going to know what the punchline means. And it shows you how much fun we had. I mean, really, those are the moments. Some of the disasters are the things you really remember the most. Um, I was not a person, like, I was not a person who broke on stage a lot, but I do remember the times I did as times of almost, they were mistakes, obviously, but a giddiness that surpassed anything and mm. and like not being able to just those feelings you could only get on stage and because the mistakes are in front of people oh i know your mistakes are public all the time do you remember that blackout uh the bagpipe blackout where the, i it was it was two of us i two of us out we step out i jump into somebody's arms oh yes I'm yes yes, a, yes, so yes, I'm yes, yes. you're the bagpipe yeah i'm wearing a kilt uh I'm wearing a kilt and uh, 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 with a with a sash and a Tam O'Shanter, and I jump into somebody's arms who's wearing, who's wearing a suit. And Dan Galogli was the piano player, so he would play dun dun, you know, two chords, and I would jump into his arms and I would do Amazing Grace on you know as a bagpipe, and he'd put me down, and um, I walk up stage, and at intermission, Galogli says, "Oh, I keep forgetting to tell you, when you jump up into." Ian's, Ian's arms, your balls are hanging out. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? i like, how long? He goes, oh, it's been for weeks. And I'm like, well, how, what do you mean you forgot to tell me? He goes, I get distracted at the end of the show. It's like, globally. What? what? How, how could that not distract? How could you not remember that? <laughs> exactly.
really? And he goes, every time, every time the, the lights would come up and the blackout would be would, would start, I would think, I gotta remember to tell him. And then the end of the blackout, people would love it and they would then walk away. Of course they loved it. Your balls were showing. Exactly. Who doesn't want to see that? Exactly. And wondering, why doesn't this blackout work for anybody? Because else? everybody's going, Why are his balls? <laughs> this is it. I told you. So after that I I wore a jock strap over my boxers. <laughs> Bet you did. Stupid. But those were the mistakes, and you go, oh, well, that's going to happen. This is Joe. Listen, I were on stage once, and Joe does a, a really, uh, he, he wanted to do a thin Jackie Gleason. So he was going to do Ralph and the Honeymooners. And my Alice wasn't as good as Rose Abdu's, but I did a pretty good Alice. And at the you know, every Honeymooner show ends with Baby, You're the Greatest. Right. But of course, Rob Bronstein was our stage manager, and Rob could become distracted easily. Uh, I don't know if you remember Rob's level of distraction, but it could be high. And that's a uh, good way to put it. So, it could be high. Yes, it could be high. Uh, so uh, you know, I say something about you know Ralph, you, you know, yeah, that never wasn't that ever will be a boss in this house. And then you know the scene ends. He throws me down. Baby, you're the greatest. Kisses me, and the lights do not go out. They don't go out. I'm like, what the fuck do we do now? And I'm not kidding. We were out on stage for a full three more minutes, <laughs> like just trying to get out of the scene. Like, how do we? It was like it was like a uh, it was like an absurdist play. It was like we it was like six chairs. What is this? The Pirandello <laughs> stuff. We are stuck on stage and we can't get off. Oh my god! Oh I, my god! That's really. Uh, cool. We got and then of course after the show we say to Rob like, Rob, why didn't you pull the lights? It's like, oh, I was laughing so hard <laughs> for three minutes, and then he forgot and he just. <clears went. throat> He's laughing, then he gets distracted. Oh, it's the time. It's going on the time. There's an uh, there's an opposite sort of story of that, and that's Peter Boyle came to main stage, and he was doing, uh, and Scott Allman was doing. You were trying to go Allman or Ratzit? Yeah, to like, out, yeah okay. uh, uh, Scott Allman was doing Nixon, and um, uh, Peter Boyle was playing G. Gordon Liddy. Well, talk about the laughs. And um, <laughs> Peter Boyle said, I, I mean, backstage, he said, I don't really, I don't audition. I don't uh, improvise that much anymore, but I'll do it. I'll do it on the set. Great. So we're in the middle of the set. We're doing the middle of the scene. We're doing the middle of the scene. The height of the scene. Uh, Peter Boyle goes, and I'm done. And he gets up and walks off stage. <laughs> had nothing to do with anything. It was just like, he was done. And he gets up and, walk, and there's 350 people looking going, What happened? What happened? What happened? That's what they're going, what happened? What possibly happened here? And then Almond, I, I was watching from the house because there's Peter Boyle. And Almond kind of just walks around and says, this is it. And then this slow crank kind of thing, this slow, <laughs> slow fade of this. audience is like going, um, okay. Oh my God, those are the worst. Like the non committal out to the scene. Like, I think it's over. Oh. I, what a. What happened here? <laughs> Yay! But when you're doing the set, when you're when you're writing the show, all that shit happens all the time. Oh yeah, because you don't know what you're doing, and you've given the stage manager wonky instructions. Right, like, and I, those I, guys I, aren't going to get it, and we're going to go off, and the audience is going to look at it and say, "But it's what you were saying, where you don't see it as failure anymore." Well, I think one of the things also, I guess this is only tangential, but one of the things that I learned at Second City about like those mistakes is the audience is instructing you in a way. The audience is telling you what works and what doesn't work. Um, and that was the most instructive thing I took away really from Second City is 
the relationship with the audience mm -hmm. that you are not acting upon the audience you are having a relationship with the audience and the audience is filling in the gaps for you and you need to honor them in a way you need to respect them right. and their input and i think that second city forces you to do that they force you to honor the input of the audience well sometimes they're drunk conventioneers and and you have to weigh that in too but they're the audience and they need to be taken into account i it's there's such a major part of the whole process yeah because we're doing it for them they tell us what works and what doesn't work and if it doesn't work it doesn't get into a show but or, that's true for everything too it's not just true for a second city shoot it's 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 true for a play you're writing or a movie you're writing or a tv show you're writing you have to be anticipating the audience because they're the people who that's who you're doing it for it's so interesting because at the moment you're also you're anticipating the audience you that's when the ego can come in and stop the entire process cold where you're going they're not going to get it what's the point of them getting it so there's a balance that you have to make through the amount of uh, the amount of you saying i know what has to happen and what can i anticipate the audience expression or uh, the audience's reaction mm -hmm. to me to that exactly exactly and you know you do want to challenge your audience and you do want to push them a little bit and ask them to, to do more, but generally they can do a lot more than what their people anticipate they can expect. People being who? I think, uh, I, well, I think when you look at a lot of movies these days, you see an anticipation by the people who make them that, that the audience can't be, um, can't be expected to understand more than this. They, and yet they still have those, screenings that adjust where after the screening they talk to people and they what are those called uh what are they called? death panels um there, i have a great story about one of those it was um who was it i think it was greg matola um <clears throat> who did directed super bad and uh, quite a, other movies too i can't remember right now, but, mm -hmm. but anyway um greg uh was it a i think it was greg anyway they had these audience cards come back and um and one of the cards said, uh, kill all gays about a gay character in the movie. And uh, I mean, it wasn't Greg, but anyway, the director goes, well, we can throw this one out. And the executive, the studio executive said, no, wait, wait, let's see. What are they saying to us? What are they trying to say? Well, uh, they're not trying to say anything. This is a crazy homophobic person who put this in here. But, you know, so you have to find the balance of like, obviously, which audience members are and then, giving you positive feed not positive feedback but useful feedback because you can't that that's a case where i'm just totally contradicting myself dave don't respect no, but, the but audience but, but <laughs> <laughs> they're idiots but i'm also thinking about what you just introduced there was the idea of that uh, a, a, another element there isn't just your you your brain your creative process and the audience it's also you your brain and then the studio and the executives of the studio yeah. and it's oh test audiences or something test, test it's audiences a, it's a very it's a difficult relationship i think right and to walk away from there no to live within that and to go this is just the way it's going to go i could get frustrated by it or i can say maybe this is the process again going back to process and when you see it as the process it's water off a duck's back where you go okay this is just the way it goes I don't like that phrase. I'm not going to use it anymore. You're not? No, the way like it, it goes? No, it is what water, it is. That's water, the off the, water off the duck's back. Oh. It's just a lot of work. It is. It's but, a lot of work, that phrase. And you know what phrase I'm going to get rid of? Um, it is what it is. It is what it is. That's yeah. hard for me to say. 
It is what it is. Yeah, I've got to get rid of it. I've yeah. been using it way too much lately. So we both resolved to get rid of two phrases. Uh, but to, and I'm also introducing you to Glarnar's and Nakas, so which I like a like, lot, and I'm going to take those and, and I'm going to use them in a sentence today. Good, not bad. Yeah, because it's also you're going to have your, a free drawer to put your words in now because you've removed that that phrase. That's so true. So you have more room. Are we going to be able to stick to these? No. I know. We're just not. not uh, but it's on, it's on tape so we can remember Oh, that. that's good. That's so good. So we can remember all those things. Um, uh, there was another phrase that people are saying. Um, oh, there's the passive aggressive phrase. Um, no, I'm good. Where somebody says, no, I'm good. Which is just such a passive aggressive. Want more coffee? No, I'm no. good. Which means like, <laughs> leave me the fuck along. That's when I read into that and that's my business. Like, no, I'm good. Um, and I also love this thing that's happening now where people are explaining things, but um, uh, uh, people don't like people don't like the Affordable Care Act because black man, you know what I mean? To use because <laughs> and then just to say because you know you know that phrase? Yeah. Because black man. I don't know. I'm nodding as though I do. But oh, I see. Now I now I know it. Listen to it. Pay attention to it. I spend a lot of time online getting angry at things. Oh my God! I've had to go offline because I got too angry. I can't even get through the paper. I'm so angry by the end of the day. I stopped. There was I was breaking up with a woman. I broke up with a woman, and then all the news was just like, "Fuck you!" I hate the news, <laughs> and I stopped. Even NPR. Oh, it's no better on NPR. The world's a disaster. Right. So I had to stop listening. You know, go back to my polluting. You know consumerist ways <laughs> and pretend nothing's happening and that's what's happening i know and you have you have a child i have two children you have two childs i do have two childs and you only talk about one of them i know <laughs> i have two childs they're both awesome uh, well only one is in my home right now okay the other one is in college i see and and the reason i bring up the childs is I look at what's going on now with everything and going, are we done? I don't know, but it's terrifying when you have child. Yeah. Because I, I do. I think about their future and it's, uh, boy, my palms are sweating more now. I mean, really, I, I get nervous about it. Uh, and there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it except, you know, hopefully they'll be prepared for the world that they're going to enter and, mm -hmm. and that's the best you can do. I think... You know, we both grew up in a time when there was still the threat of nuclear war, which there still is now. I mean, it's ridiculous to think there's not a threat of nuclear war anymore. But, you know, not to diminish uh, climate change because it's it's That's a real disaster. Thing. Right. Um, the world's going to end at some point. And so we do, you know, I, I wonder how much uh, we've always been preparing for it just kind of as a people. Yeah. I Do you remember air raid drills? God, weren't they ridiculous? Just ridiculous. And you know what? They never told. I, when I was a kid, they called them bomb, uh, bomb something, bomb drills. But they never told us what kind of bomb. I, I didn't. I didn't even know what a nuclear bomb was for a long time. They just said bomb drills, and I was like, I've seen like World War II movies on TV in the afternoon, so I, I thought they were talking about like bombs, right? Which never made any sense to me. I didn't right. understand what was going on at all. It just in you know, it just filled you with kind of a vague fear that you lived with. Or you time. just kind of ignored it. Yeah. Because when I think about okay, we're gonna have a, so the siren would go off in the school, in the grammar school, and everyone's like, okay, we're gonna have a an air raid drill, and you would walk out of the classrooms and you would walk into the hallway, 
and you get on your knees and you put your head against the lockers. Yes, do you remember that? And then put your yeah. hands like up put here Put your on hands your like here like, behind what? your head, right? As if magic shield happens in this position. And then the teachers are walking to the hall and their job is to go, shh, shh. As if, if you are loud, the bombs are gonna hurt more or what? I don't know. Our parents must have been terrified. Right, the way that you are terrified. Yes, I live in a, a state of constant terror. For a, my a state of constant palm sweating. Palm sweating yeah. all the time. Oh, oh, but and then you do all, or you go. You know what? Here's the juice box. Here's I'm going to get the backpack with the plastic <laughs> wrap and the and the and, and the, uh, the the singles, the craft singles that has more plastic on it. Fuck <laughs> it, it's easy for me to do. I don't have any plastic wrapped craft singles. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm saying the generic you, but I, I do know. look at that and I think people would get those individual things because life is harried. Was your mom at home? My mom was at home until I went to school. I'm like fifth of six. Mm -hmm. So um, when my brother and I were both at school all the time, she got a job as a school librarian. Mm -hmm. So she was home when I was a little kid, right. but you know, honestly, parents didn't act the way they do now. My mother had six children. She, I don't remember her playing with me, playing with me. Jesus Christ. She had like laundry and cooking and oh my God, she had six children. Oh my, uh, you know, Tamara, Tamara Bick. Yeah. Tamara Bick's grandmother had 24 kids. <gasps> oh, no. Tell me some were twins. None were twins. No, you're a liar. None were twins. Oh my None God. None were twins. And here's oh, the thing, my like, lady bits just got sore. I know, right? And you never stop making birthday cakes or you, I don't know, what do you do? I, I had someone else who told me a story of a family she knew like that. And they said that basically the older kids were assigned a younger kid. Right. It was like, that's your, that's your buddy. Right. right. <laughs> You're in charge of your buddy. Right. Well, you see this house. Okay. When we moved into this house, it's a bungalow on a block of bungalows. So we have our bungalow and then we have the, the house to the to this, uh, west of us and the house to the east of us. So we moved here. Um, these family were Eugene and Chucky Bird, the birds. They were the fish. They the birds the and the fish. They were the fish. Their names were the fish. So they were the fish. The fish moved out and the muds moved in. Different story though. So the fish... The had fish, nine birds, kids living in this type house. And you go, how the fuck do you do that? How many kids were in this house? Uh, in, in that house next door? No, you. How my many? house was, my, my, my sister's 12 years younger than I. So I lived 12 here. 12 years younger? Yeah, my sister's 12 years younger than I. Uh, so we lived in this house. You know, I lived in this house. I don't know. Uh, Jordy and I shared that bedroom. And then eventually my sister came in and she took that bedroom. And so we lived in this house until I was... 18 or 19. And then I lived in the basement, which is still in the house. Still part of the house. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, they have yeah. been removed from the house. That's good. Mm, I haven't been down there. <laughs> could be gone. Last could visit, be filled in. But it could be filled in. Yeah. They could have filled it in. It's filled in with memories, Barb. Oh, that's It's so sweet. filled with Isn't memories. Isn't that sweet? It's oh, really that nice. breaks my heart. It's really nice. But I can't imagine living in a house like that. I can't imagine. For me, so there are four of you. There were four of you. Are you going to do... No, there are six of us. In, no, right now. Oh, you yeah, and Tom and, and together. Well, right. one's in college. So right. there are only three of us in the house. Do you... Are you... Are you anticipating this empty nest thing yes. that people talk about? Oh, my God. You know, it's it's not that they're going to be gone out of the house. That's it. It's that, um, you know, um, I have a my former agent who stopped being an agent and took another job. She was like our agent for 19 years and she's a friend of ours now. And I, we have kids the same age. And I was talking to her about, um, you know, sending kids off to college. And, and one of the things she said, which is true, it's like, even if you're a working mother, even if you're a parent, you put really kind of 
your best energy, and this is why I have no ambition anymore, because you put all your best energy into being a parent. It becomes a job. And, uh, and that job has so much meaning. You know that really bad army ad from years ago, it's the best job you'll ever, uh, it's the hardest job you'll ever love? Right. That's what it's like. So it's like having this enormous job that you had that was incredibly meaningful, like a really meaningful job, be over. And now you're like, okay, uh, and it's not over. It's not like you're not going to still be parenting your kids. You do, even when they're older. But um, it's different. And so it's like, what else would replace that passion? Like, I love my work, and I've always really enjoyed it. But it, it's never occupied the same passion that I had for my children. Right. Um, and I, I'm not, uh, it's, parenting is not for everybody. It just so happens that it's something I really liked. Do you know what I mean? It's something I felt I got meaning out of. And uh, me not having ever having children, but having been, having been married for 14 years, when you met Tom, because again, <laughs> when you met Tom, did you go, I want to have kids with you? Mm -mm. I mean, I... Uh, like, how does that happen? That you have kids? No, I know how you have kids. But how does that happen <laughs> where you go, I think I want to have kids, and I want to have kids. I, you I know, guess it just... I don't know what happened. We didn't get married saying we want to have kids. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know, we went and had kids. So um, I don't know. Uh, one day, you know, I guess I always wanted kids. That's mm -hmm. the truth. I did always want kids. And mm -hmm. Tom was amenable to that. Though I don't know that he was like, I've always desired and, you know, it's my greatest passion. I can't imagine Tom even using that tone of voice. No, he doesn't. He doesn't use that tone of voice, does he? No, he has a very sarcastic, dry tone of voice that he uses. Um, but, uh, no, he never said that. But, he, you know, I, I always really wanted kids because um, I like kids. Right. I mean, I think that's really the bottom line. I like kids. Mm -hmm. I, I think they're fun and mm -hmm. amusing, and I have a good time with them. And I understand kids, I feel like. I think I really get what they're about, and I like them. So... Um, I so I guess I wanted them for that reason. That's such an interesting thing is the idea of I like kids because I like kids because they're enjoyable. I as opposed to that's just what you do, right? Because no. I think that, that might be what I know. My I know with the fish who live next door, it seemed like that's just what you do. Yeah, the Catholic Church says that's what you do. Yeah, my ex in laws had you know five kids, and when I asked Betty why did you have kids, my former mother in law my late former mother-in-law, she said, it was just what you do, what you did, it's just what you did. And I thought, wow, that's, what's that like? That's kind of victim-y. Or, like, yeah. how do you, how do you, you are sacrificing yourself for the, the next generation, and you're just a tube. Yeah, that's weird. And, you know, I think I had the good fortune in that I had a mother who was both Catholic and believed that she should have soldiers of Christ, and so she birthed them. Unfortunately, she didn't birth any real soldiers of Christ, which was a heartbreak to her. Um, oh, really? So none of you are soldiers of Christ? No. I mean, I think my brother practices a little, mm -hmm. uh, like on holidays and stuff. But no, there's no soldiers of Christ. Mm -hmm. that, that was a great heartbreak to her. But, it was um, a big heartbreak to Betty as well. Oh, her, she didn't have any soldiers of Christ? No, her? she did not have any. Oh. So she does. She did, but not in a way. It was like, we rode on to Florida and we'd hang out. And it's like, who's going? It was Christmas. Like, who's coming with me to church? Anybody and, go? Nope. And it was a big dun 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 dun. Flintstone, angry Fred music, marching off. <laughs> oh no, my mother couldn't get anybody to go to church with her. I mean, because she tortured us through. My mother was the kind of person who would arrive at church late with six children in tow and then march us all up to the front row, <sighs> mortifying. And nobody wanted to sit next to my mother in church because my mother was 
just a little bit holier than the priest. So she would like sing more loudly than everybody else and say the prayers more loudly in kind of, if you want to know where I got my acting desire from, it was my mother because she really, she really laid it she on sold in church. It. She sold it. Oh, she it. sold it so much. There were times when I was like, she's going to ascend. She's, she's <laughs> definitely going to ascend. Right here now. So we would all get into church and there would be like this jockeying for position where like the first person behind my mother realizing I'm going to have to sit next to her during mass What's would like name? stop. Your name? Eileen. Eileen. Stop and tie their shoe. <laughs> and like, no, go past me. Go ahead, go past me. <laughs> we would basically back up, like, I'm not going past. I'm not going past. I'm not going past to see who would get stuck next to her in church. Um, I mean, she was the kind of person who, like, moved the hymnal over in front of your face so that you would sing the song. Wow. My mother died recently, and I adore her. I, mm. I adored her. She, mm. But, you know, as a child, that kind of religiosity just really, it, 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 you couldn't live up to it. And it really, it, it made it hard for you to ever want to participate. Interesting that you call it religiosity because it has nothing to do with what is what I feel the core of that is is spirituality exactly and she was a very spiritual person uh, honestly in her in her whole life she was but I think she couldn't translate that into like something meaningful for us as right. kids. and so it's so interesting the whistles and bells that that get in the way that whistles and bells that lie upon are forced upon that spirituality underneath it because I just read a book called um the Testament of Mary it was made into a play on oh, Broadway. Yeah. Um, I've heard of it. Well, Terry Gross had the guy on. That's why I've heard of it. Right. So he, and I was like, I'm going to read this book. Um, but it made you, it really made you think about, like, Mary is this, she seemed like a bit cranky lady in this book. Um, and it's an interesting book because you look at it going, I didn't know that Mary was like that. And you're going to go, wait a minute, Mary was a fictional character. <laughs> But so they're so ingrained into our into our, our our system that it seems like a real person. But Mary was looking at all of Jesus' friends, and going, "They are what's up with my my boys hanging around with the wrong crowd. wrong crowd." And there <coughs> is the the idea of spirit and the reason that of doing things gets lost in the 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 miracles that are placed upon it and this this the sacredness that is forced upon it. Yeah, and also the Catholic Church does a special job That's by exactly. molesting children. Exactly. They add another They add another layer to another it of being corrupt. Exactly. And completely untrustworthy. Absolutely. And Another reason why it's really hard. I, I did like toward the uh, my mom used to come visit me in Evanston and she I would take her to mass. I wouldn't go to mass. I'd drop her off. And then I thought, oh, God, I, I'm going to come in at the end of mass this time and, and see if I can find my mom. It'll, she'll like it. And I happened to come the day somebody was there from the archdiocese raising money. And it was after all the molestation scandals. And the guy was up there spewing a big line of bullshit about how none of this money is going toward defense. And I'm like, fuck you. And I was, it was like the last time I did it, that last time I made an attempt of like, I'll just go in and sit there. And it was the, it was the time they were trying to raise up money when they don't give any, you know, they don't do anything for their nuns or their retirees or their, like, it was just, I was so appalled i couldn't i don't know back. how people do it i don't know how women do it i don't know how women do it i don't know how women are catholics i just understand it and then i understand how women who hang out with men are catholic, are catholics too because the idea of, of 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 at one point being against birth control and certainly against family planning and those sort of Abortion. things sort of thing. know, exactly just, I... and and those aren't women issues those are human issues you know, where what's going on in Texas and closing all the Planned Parenthood things going on in Louisiana and all that sort of thing. Yeah, women should be up in arms, but you know what? 
family should be up in arms because again, this is not about women. It's about us taking control of what it is that we're doing with our lives. Yeah, it's true, but nobody sees it that way. I think women are still referred to as like a minority group. They're still in a niche audience, you know, even in the studio system or in politics, the niche audience of women were 52% of the population. How is that a fucking niche? Right. We're not a niche. Right. Um, so you mentored a, a young girl. Did you, did I get that right? Did you mentor somebody from Mauritania or somewhere? Oh, I had a family. Uh, uh, actually, it started out, I was a women's empowerment mentor. That's what made me, that's what made me. Um, that's what I was, my volunteer job was. And actually, um, I ended up being a mentor for a family of eight is kind of what happened. Um, because they had so many needs that weren't just uh, Umu's needs. They were everybody's needs. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. And that was an amazing experience. I still keep in touch with them. They live in Moline, Illinois now. They moved out there. They had six children. Um, they came here from Mauritania. They were illiterate in their own language, uh, let alone in English. And what I came away with was the determination it takes to become a refugee. Mm -hmm. You don't get, you know, you don't just get labeled a refugee. You have to get yourself labeled a refugee. Imagine doing that without being able to read or write in your own language. What does that mean? It means you need to provide documentation to the UN High Commission on Refugees about your situation and why you're there. Um, you need to document your children and that they're legitimately your children and to, in order to get everybody established as a refugee. And you can't read. And you can't read. Amazing people. And you can't even read in your language. Amazing people. And through them, I met by working at that refugee agency. I also met a lot of other Africans, people from Sudan and some from Kenya. And, um, you know, not all Africans are the same. Obviously, they all come from different countries. Um, but by and large, most of the Africans I know have such um, a great sense of humor, a joie de vivre about like, oh, God, everything is so fucked up. Oh, well. Right. Right. <laughs> Who's eating? <laughs> You know, like it's it's not a resignation, but it is a, an a acceptance sen and, and a sense of humor in the face of often just terrible circumstances. And again, I'm using the word acceptance because it yeah. is that that it's like, oh, this is what's happening. What was the phrase that you don't want to use anymore? It is what it is. It is what it you is. You made me use it again. No, I'm just using Why it as an example. That? No, because today's the, last day. today's the last day. Today's okay. the last day. All right. So we're going to we're going to we're going to send it out. We're we're sending Barb out. is not anymore using. <laughs> it, it, it is, is what, what it is. is. Um, but the idea of accepting that, and once you accept it, as opposed to fighting that, whatever that is, once you accept that, and you're, and you're not fighting it, you're able to get on with what it is that your life is going to be about, or your life is about in that moment. Am I making sense? Yes. Yes, you do. And um, I mean, they 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 taught me a lot of that, and they taught me a lot of other things. And I did it because, you know, my job as a TV writer is, you know, how important are we really in the world? And so I, I needed, felt, I felt like I needed to do something. How did you pick that? I've always been interested in refugees. Mm -hmm. I actually don't do it anymore because, right. I mean, I loved that family, but it was a very, very all-consuming kind of volunteer gig. Right. Um, I mean, it was like helping them get their, you know, WIC coupons. And at one point... <laughs> They said to me uh, they wanted to get their four-year-old circumcised, and could I find a way to get their four-year-old circumcised? So I'm like on vacation in Canada, like calling which hospitals to see who has a pediatric anesthesiologist because 
because I've got this, you know, idea in my head that I will not send Alasan, the child, to have anything less than my own children would have. Mm-hmm. So I spend like a week on the phone. I find a place that has pediatric anesthesia. I actually Who paid for that Medicaid. People think that Medicaid sucks. Medicaid does not suck, no, by know. the way. Medicaid right. does not suck. Well, no, you don't get to choose your doctor. No, they don't cover every procedure. But, you know, they cover a lot of stuff, and they take very good care of people. I, I believe that when you hear the word Medicaid, or Medicaid, or Medicare, or Medi-Cal, whatever that's going to be, um, there's just it's so loaded with a political picture that somebody sees that is just so not what it is. Yeah. And, it, and I don't understand, again, it, it helps out so many of our neighbors and our friends and our relatives and our community and makes it strong in that way. And to look at it and say, these are money-grubbing leeches who are takers. Oh, and to say, there are going to be those people. But that's not everybody. That's a small percentage of it all. And honestly, I mean, this family did not abuse Medicaid in any way. They used Medicaid when they were sick. I mean, the... The father had a bone infection from a snake bite from many years ago. You know, their kids needed medical care. They didn't use a lot of medical care. It was like regular care you might need if you've had a snake bite. Um, but I will say the day that I helped them bring their child to have the circumcision, I had arrived there with uh, Demba, the father, who's like 54 years old, doesn't speak any English, limps. And that day, uh, Demba had chosen to wear uh Often he wore like a woman's coat because he didn't know the difference between, he didn't care. He was also wearing like the craziest baseball cap he'd ever chosen. It had like a big American Eagle on it. And his translator came with me. I had this wonderful man who was a translator from Mauritania. He'd been educated in France, spoke English in France, 73 years old, but was blind. So I arrive at the hospital with my friend Demba limping with a cane, with a hat, with a big American Eagle on it. His four-year-old son. Wearing a woman's coat. Wearing a woman's coat. Uh, his son, Alasan, adorable child, lovely little boy. And um, my friend, the translator, um, and he is blind. And I have to lead him through the hospital. And so they come with the papers that Demba has to sign, you know, all the releases and everything for the surgery. And she comes and hands them to me. And I basically have to read them to the translator, um, Abdul, and Abdul has to kind of summarize them in his head and then translate them <laughs> into uh, Demba's language. It's Mauritanian? Uh, no, they speak, uh, I'm blanking on it right now, anyway. Um, and then Demba signs it with an X. <laughs> it was, I mean, it took like 45 minutes to get through the papers. Alone. I can't believe that we that you have to the process of calling yourself a refugee is a process. Yeah, it's a process. And then once you're a refugee, you wait. You wait. You wait until they will assign you a country essentially. Is that what happened? Mm-hmm. Every country takes a certain amount of refugees, so the UN High Commission will send a certain number of people ex whoever's accepting at this point. And they send you out basically like with your papers in a backpack. And your five children. Six. Six children. I'm sorry. Your six children with your wife. You and your wife, your six mm-hmm. children. Eight of you. Yeah. 
coming on a boat? A plane? They send you on a plane, and then they you get um, you get paired with an agency wherever you go. Like here, it's Refugee One. They got paired with, but you know, Catholic Charities. Okay, I blasted the Catholic Church before. I'm going to take a little of it back and say the Catholic Charities does, does some really good work. Um, whatever they take in a family, and then they you know, they take care of housing for a certain period of time and they make sure all their paperwork is in order and they get them into English classes and stuff like that. Oh my God. It's it, overwhelming. Yeah. It is. overwhelming, and, and it makes you go, Oh, I'm worried about what's going to happen in that. Exactly what it does. <laughs> it makes you say, what an asshole am I? And, and yet, yes. Right. But I can't, uh, this is a whole different conversation. I, I can't compare myself to anybody else. You know, your pain is your pain. I get it. My pain no, you're right. Pain. You're right. You're absolutely right. That too. Um, but people always get me. Yeah, but you know what? At least I'm not uh, on a on a uh, in a raft in the middle of the Mississippi. Yeah, it's raining, and I'm going. Why are you comparing yourself? Live your fucking life right now. You're right, Dave. You're so wise. Let's end there. At the Dave, you're so wise. <laughs> you Thank bastard. you so much. <laughs> I pulled you in, and I got you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. If you'd like to see one of Dave's improv shows or one of my stand-up shows, you can get that information at addcomedy.com. If you want to take a class with Dave, that information is located on his website at davidrosowski.com. You can also follow Dave on Twitter at drosowski. Today's episode was sponsored by Troubadour, a restaurant movie. A new movie by Group Mind Films, portraying an accurate, sometimes funny, and sometimes cringe-inducing glimpse at restaurant life. Troubadour, a restaurant movie. Available to watch in its entirety online for only $5 at groupmindfilms.com.